This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in and grab a bucket. We are talking ice fishing. Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter, we are your hosts of Shack Talk Ice Fishing Podcast. And we're going to jump right in this segment. We're going we're gonna to start off the podcast today with a catch and cook segment. That's our focus. We are really excited to welcome uh, Josh McFadden in as our guest, as our expert in the catch and cook category. He modestly says he's just a guy who likes to go outdoors and do stuff when, uh, quite honestly, I think we know better than that. This is a gentleman who is a content creator. He is a, an outdoor adventurer a wild food creator, and a really fun guy to follow on social media and all of the adventures and things that he's doing. Josh, welcome to Shack Talk. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. I- I'm just going to ask this right away so I don't forget. For our listeners who may not be following you right now, where can they find you? Where can they follow along on all the fun stuff you're doing? Yeah, um, for the most part, like Instagram is where to see um, everything I'm doing on a regular basis. It's at Josh McFads. That's Josh M-C-F-A-D-S. And yeah, that's pretty much where I keep, uh, keep, keep the crowd up to speed as to what I'm doing on a fairly regular basis anyway. That's awesome. For anybody that's listening, yeah, definitely give it a follow. I mean, that's how kind of Josh and I introduced each other. You know, the, the age of social media, nothing's off limits. And, you know, what's fun is sharing a, a passion. Um, I've really gotten into cooking. Obviously, I love uh, wild game, fish, uh, everything to go along with that. Uh, I always tell people my passion for cooking really started because I have a passion for eating. I love to eat good food. And if I'm going to eat good food, I, I might as well learn how to cook it. Absolutely. I can echo that for sure. Good food is, uh, I mean, it should be, be around you at all times. I, I love eating and I should be a lot heavier than I am. And I think I just portion my, uh, and I don't know, portion things properly and, and have a little bit of self-control, but man, I love to eat food. I like putting flavors in my mouth. That's for sure. It's definitely a, 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 something that fuels a lot of us in and in our outdoor passions as well, right? Uh, the responsibility well, and, and kind of taking it to that next step of of consuming what we harvest and, and being a part of that experience is uh, it's it's really a continuation of what the outdoor um, actually being outdoors is all about. And so, Josh, if we looked at kind of your favorites. You do if you you have any, and and you know maybe it's depending on the time of the year, right? But yeah. are, are you a uh, um, if if you could limit yourself to just one area, would it be fish? Would it be would it be big game? Would it be uh, upland birds, waterfall? What's kind of what's your favorite area of of cooking and preparing wild game? Oh, man, that's uh, for me. It may not necessarily be like the type of uh, game or meat but it might be preparation method. Um, and for me, it's fire cooking. Like if you can cook anything over a fire, it tastes so much better. And, um, you know, adding things like butter and bacon and all those, you know, lovely fattening things to the mix is always better as well. But, um, the natural smoky flavor and just that heat to, you know, sear a meat properly and, and, 
it's fire. Yeah. Fire is definitely. So if it's fish, if it's game, um, whether it's fowl or, you know, four legged ungulate or something that swims, I mean, over the fire is definitely preferred. Um, and then when it comes to fish versus game, uh, it's a, it's a tough one because there's so many, uh, different, you know, recipes and flavors that go through my mind. I really do love game. I love harvesting, um, you know, venison and, and consuming that. That's one of my favorites. I've been getting a lot more over the past few years into bear and practicing and and experimenting with that a little bit. And, and I love it. I I came from being an anti-bear guy, um, mostly because of, you know, stories I'd heard and the way that a lot of hunters treat bears and, and they, they pretty, they're kind of a disrespected animal. Um, and, uh, you know, most, most guys aren't really consuming it. And then I started, uh, eating it and became a believer right away. So I now actively archery hunt bears every spring and it breaks up hunting season a little bit too, for the hunting audience out there. Um, it allows you to hunt big game in spring, which isn't super typical. I'm sure where you guys are, there's turkeys and things like that in spring, but, um, going for something that's, you know, a larger game animal in the spring is really nice and puts a little extra meat in the freezer. And that has, you know, really driven me to try new things with food too. Like just recently I made, um, like, Chinese style dumplings and spring rolls, um, with, with bear meat. And that's a great snack. Like everybody loves dumplings or pot stickers and spring rolls and it's bear meat, right? Like a meat that's typically scoffed at. And I still hear on a regular basis from hunters that, you know, the only good bear is one that you, you know, you kind of throw in the garbage kind of thing and, uh, or like boil the meat and, and with a rock and throw away the meat and eat the rock kind of story. Right. And, uh, it's the typical story with meats that are demonized or, you know, bear meats greasy. And, um, it's just never the case. Like I was shocked the first time I started really eating it and preparing it properly. And it all comes down to method and just, um, you know, there's a respect thing there too, right? Like if you want to, um, you know, treat, treat an animal properly and, and believe that, you know, this, you, you've taken this animal to consume it. Um, you got to treat it properly. And I think that there's a responsibility there to learn methods to enjoy it as well. And to not just think that, I mean, f- with fish as well, bur- burbot's a perfect example. And uh, I'll, I'll trans or I'll, I'll, I'll move this into fishing a little bit. And just recently I did a, a recipe in a video with a, poor man's lobster roll and you know the the lobster roll is a pretty classic lobster dish and it's more of the kind of carnival junk food style of eating lobster right there's nothing high class about it at all it's a greasy buttered you know fried bun with mayonnaise on it and it's it's fattening and it's just a gluttonous bite of food um but man is it ever beautiful so i took a burbot and fried it in butter like a brown butter um you know cut it up cut the back strap up into some some chunks and uh omitted all of the classic like you know boil it and seven up and sprite and all these things first to you know change the flavors of it and take away from the natural uh elegance if there is any that burbot meat may have and uh just sort of celebrating the natural flavors and the texture to it and the fishiness that does come along with it because they do have a great history in um 
even with their oils, right? Like there was there were a massive amount of people consuming burbot for the um, healthful benefits years and years ago. And that's been left because like, I, I, don't, I don't even know why, but it, history changes things and people's palates change. And for me, it's really important to sort of look back at those things and healthy foods, definitely important and mixing in certain healthy foods. I mean, as I'm drinking a beer, I'm talking about health food. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's just that balance, right? And, and respecting the, these animals that really are beautiful. Like a burbot is one of the coolest looking fish, I think, that we've collectively got in our waterways. And that leopard pattern, like, come on. Like, there's, no, there's nothing else like it. They're and awesome. To be able, yeah, and to be able to just enjoy its uniqueness and to not, again, demonize a fish or an animal for any sort of reason, right? Like, I've seen them left on the ice, as, as many people probably have as well. And um, it's, uh, you know, I've, and people will call them dogfish and things, and they have all these nicknames to sort of make them seem less um, whatever, might be less desirable. And, and yeah, anyhow, for me, it's really important to, to make sure that we're looking looking out for those underdog species as well. And not only enjoying the fishing opportunity because it is amazing and it's, there's so much fun to fish. They're a completely different animal to target, especially with night fishing and consuming those fish. I mean, here in Manitoba, every single species has a limit and burbot are limitless. And so many anglers go fishing for food and they want to get their limit of walleyes they want to get their limit of xyz perch crappies whatever it might be and a, a, you can't catch enough burbots like there there's an unlimited they're an unlimited um uh tag limit essentially and, and you can catch as, and keep as many as you want so the cool thing there for me as well is like man when the burbot bite is hot you can fill a freezer with burbot meat and have this awesome food to snack on for a long time. And if your favorite method of eating fish is to batter coat and deep fry it, uh, it's fantastic, right? Like it's, it's a freshwater cod. And we all, when, when we get fish and chips, it's like, yeah, I'll take the cod and the chips. Right. Um, so it's, uh, it's definitely a favorable piece of meat for me. And, and again, it depends on regionally, I think where you go, um, they may have more respect uh, in, in some places than others. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, I favor the, the underdogs and the It's funny guys. that you mentioned that because last, uh, last episode, we actually did a whole segment talking about burbot. So uh, for anybody that's listening to this segment, um, if you didn't catch the last, uh, last episode, go back, listen to it. Uh, we talked with a guy that guides for burbot down here in uh, Minnesota and, you know, it's definitely seem to be on the rise for popularity here, but you know, I, I agree with you. You got to go after those fish that um, give you an opportunity, um, you know, cheer for yeah. the underdog, like you may say. And one thing that you touched on that maybe want to focus a little bit on too is preparation and care for the, the fish or the game. What kind of steps do you take when you're out fishing um, in preparing your catch for, for, for consuming? Um. Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of depends on how busy the day is, but it's always important to me to make sure that the fish is dispatched and bled out is, is key. Um, I've got a really good friend. His name's Tony and he's a awesome man and he's out from the East coast and he commercially, um, fishes cod and other species, but cod's kind of the main 
focus and he does traditional kind of like hand line catching these things um and has a really premium product so for him it's uh it comes down to stress a lot of the time and and you don't want to stress out the fish because the stress it changes the texture of the meat which we don't think about right sometimes when we're hunting game you know if if a goose goes down and it's stressed out and adrenaline we say a lot even when you know deer hunting if you wound a deer all of that adrenaline builds up and it makes the meat the meat taste bad and even um some conversations that I've had with him in the world of even just drilling a live well in the ice and putting the fish, the fish in there and they're kicking around and trying to actually swim away. It, it changes the texture and the flavor of the meat because the fish is stressed out. So I think a quick ethical method of dispatching is great. Bleeding out seems to be a lot better. We've all seen the difference of like the white for in a walleye, right? The white versus the pink meat um, when you've bled one out or have not. And a walleye is fairly vanilla in flavor regardless. Um, but when you're dealing with a species that does have a little more of a fishy flavor, that blood can, it seems like that blood can sort of carry some of those flavors outside of the fats and stuff that are in the meat as well. And bleeding, yeah, bleeding out the fish. I mean, it's our duty to um, treat these animals properly, right? And if we are going to consume them, you know, letting it suffocate on the ice or freezing on the ice, it happens and it's it's very common. I wouldn't say necessarily that it's wrong or anyone should feel guilty about it, but um, a, a quick dispatch is always the ethical thing to do. So why not? try as often as you can and you really do get a better food product out of it and if you care about the food product try it out right like see see what kind of difference it makes and if it does to you or not you'll more than likely see a difference when you're talking about um the meats that carry a little more flavor profile to them like a burbot or like a pike for example bleed it out and see if that makes a flavor and texture difference and uh, you might be surprised and there's nothing worse than cleaning a batch of frozen fish sticks, you know, a bunch of fish uh, that you've left out there. I mean, take a minute, put them in a bucket, keep them warm, keep them from yeah. freezing. That's, that's the thing I hate the most. Like I'll often not keep fish just to release them. If I know I'm sort of, I'm a, I'm a lazy person too. Right. Like at times and like, man, if I don't want to clean fish or if burbot, for example, as well, you're it's at night, it's colder generally. And I'll be getting home a little bit later and like, man, I don't want to clean fish that are frozen tomorrow and thaw them out and do that whole song and dance. So if I'm not cleaning them on the ice or at least slabbing them on the ice, I don't take them home. And um, for me, it's kind of an ethical thing as well there because I'll feel less inclined to clean it if it is frozen solid. And um, it, yeah, it changes, changes the meat for sure. If you freeze it first and then thaw it and clean it frozen, it's, and it's a hassle. Yeah. It's just kind of a pain in the butt. So I just, Avoid it if I can. I know this and is I think a, that's a. Go ahead, guy. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think that's a good point, too. Even just consuming fish fresh. I mean, I eat fresh fish more than I do frozen fish. I will keep fish in the freezer from time to time if I know I've got a big feed, but fresh is obviously better. Yeah, I always highly encourage that, right? Especially a lot of the cooking that I do and what I focus on is you know, um, introduction, introducing a new outdoors person to a certain type of food or introducing, uh, an active outdoors person to a new type of food. And if you're doing that, you want to have it in the best possible state. And for most 
wild game out there. We're freezing the red meats and things like that and holding on to them for a couple seasons <laughs> at times. And, you know, at, at that point, it's like, man, we're going to vacuum seal that thing and make sure there's no air in there and we're going to freeze it the best quality possible. We're not thawing it, then freezing it, then thawing it, then freezing it. And even with deer, you know, it's fairly common to hang a deer and it ends up freezing in the fall. And then we thaw it inside and then process it and um, sometimes thaw it again to grind it and make sausage and then freeze it again. And there's so much thaw, freeze, thaw, freeze going on. It's, it's yeah, highly preferred to limit that as much as possible. And Kyle, you're, you're, you're itching to say something. Uh, no, I was, I was going to go back just to the, the previous conversation where we talked about care of your fish. I know we're, this is an ice fishing podcast right but do you, do you kind of carry that same practice through open water all year round uh as far as bleeding your fish out dispatching them right away or or putting them in a live well in a boat do you, do you feel that's different in terms of how it affects the meat quality um so i'll tell you what i do and i'll tell you that i think it's it's wrong <laughs> and uh and not for any ethical reasons really but um as far as you know following the practice of let's say not stressing out the fish. Um, I don't think ethics really falls into play here as much, but, you know, tossing a fish, if you're out fishing in a tinner or a canoe or something, well, um, we've all tied a, whatever it might be, any kind of length of rope or a stringer of some sort and hung the fish off the side for most of the day before we get back to camp and then clean the fish. And that causes stress. And, we know for a fact that live wells cause stress because we see it in tournament situations and we see it on just regular active fishing day situations. That walleye that you caught in the morning probably isn't doing too well come lunchtime uh, or dinner time uh, in the live well, even though there's some oxygen and there's some water. You know, half of them are floating um, belly up and half of them are flowing properly, and uh, it's it's a stress thing. There, that fish once that fish is caught, I mean. It, it, it's not really too crazy of an analogy to think that uh, if you were eating a sandwich right now and a hook emerged out of it and pierced you through the mouth and you were dragged halfway across the living room and then up through your roof, well, maybe maybe that would cause a little bit of stress. Even if you got let go, there might be a, you know, a half-hour cool-down period where you're thinking about what just happened. How, like, my life just got completely turned upside down. Just and a I little think stress. Really, yeah, so you're kind of stressed out, right? So I, I think that there's um, there, there's stress that's added to it. And again, it, it, when, it, when we're talking about adrenaline, all of those chemical things that change, and a thought in your brain can change the chemicals in your body, right? Like an, a phone call with bad news can change the chemicals in your body and change all of these different things that are going on. And that happens with animals too. They're made up of very similar elements, and there's all of these chemical reactions that are consistently happening. And I don't know anything about fish feelings or animal feelings all i know is that stress exists all of the time and and you know we see it even if you hook a fish and you sting a bass or something well that bass may not want to bite again and it's probably because it's trying to process what happened and not make the same bad mistake that it just made biting that thing that might not quite look like food but looks really good um and anyhow i think i think there's a uh, uh, maybe I'm, I'm humanizing these, these uh, critters a little too much, but I think, I think some, at some point there's, there's a stress factor there and um, tossing fish in the live. Well, sure. Go for it. Keeps them fresh and uh, throwing them on a stringer. Amazing works as well. And 
the other factor that you have to consider is that as soon as you kill something and put it down, decomposition comes into play, right? So you don't want to put something out too early and have it sitting in the live well and the water gets warm and oxygen isn't a factor at that point. It doesn't matter. Decomposition is, is occurring. So we also don't want that to happen, right? So killing it, chilling it works really good. If you keep a cooler in the boat um, or on shore or wherever you are and uh, keep a little bit of ice in there, some ice packs, um, slitting it, bleeding it, and um, chill, putting it on chill is, uh, is, is a great way to, to process it, right? And often there's a, a cooler with some bevies and things like that in the boat. So it's always nice to pull a pop out of the cooler with a little bit of walleye grease all over it. Yeah, it's got to add a little extra flavor, right? Well, yeah, flavor, and I think it puts a little extra hair on the body, and it's it's good for you. Yeah, so when we talk a little bit, you know, maybe looking at fish, um, you talked a little bit, mentioned, you know, introducing new people to fish. I mean, fish, I think for a lot of people, you either love it or you hate it. You know, it's got, you know, the same bad or negative connotations that you've mentioned what's one suggestion or one preparation for, you know, somebody that you're trying to introduce them to fish. I'm sure we've got people listening, maybe their girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, maybe they don't like fish. Is there a, what's your tried and true go-to recipe for introducing someone to fish? Catch and cook. Catch and cook. <laughs> is that the right answer? Uh, you know, it works for me. <laughs> yeah. So it, in reality, it, it is that, right? So, um, Catch and cook for anybody who's listening and who doesn't know what it is because it's just on, it's just on the brink of explosion right now. Um, but uh, catch and cook is a, a seasoning. It's a it's a coating mix, a seasoned coating mix that Jay Siemens and myself have come up with. It's a mix that I've been using myself for many many years um, for the purpose of a enjoying fish and b. Um, having a, a really accommodating introduction to fish for people who may not eat it on a regular basis. One sec, I got to, there we go. So um, it's, it's, it's a seasoned flour type mix. There's some additives, not additives, I shouldn't say that, but there's some extra ingredients in there um, that for me hit those savory notes um, that are loved by the North American palate and it, it, it tickles, it tickles all the, the, the bits, right? So, um, a lot of the times when somebody's had a bad experience with fish and I'll, I'll get into a story where, uh, I realized at a pretty young age where, um, bad experiences with eating fish, um, put a bad taste obviously in people's mouths, but it, they can be changed, um, that, or their minds can be changed. And so, so yeah, I'll catch and cook first. Um, really accommodating flavors and deep fried. Like that's, everybody loves that. Um, uh, how should I say it? Deep fried food. Let's just say deep fried food. Hot, it's fried food. It's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Deep fried, crunchy, something that we're probably, you know, we're, we're not supposed to be doing it, but we do it anyways. And, and, uh, it just makes us feel all better. And it, again, it, your, your brain really sparkles inside when you're biting into something that has a crunch to it and it has a pop of those really amazing flavors. So we've gone with something that has, you know, a nice salt content. There's no MSG in there. Um, so there's, there's nothing really bad in there for you. It's just really common ingredients. Uh, but the flavor profile is something that's just savory and um, 
again, really comforting to the North American palate, which I think is, is what you need when you're introducing somebody to fish. And when you're also eating fish on a regular basis, you want those nostalgic sort of flavors and, uh, it, it does that. So, um, to the story where, uh, I realized at a young age that, um, preparation is key. A friend of mine that I grew up with, we were really close. I spent a lot of time at their family cottage. He had an uncle who at the time was probably in his fifties, late forties, early fifties. And he had gone, you know, living in cottage country his whole life and hated fish. And if there was one fish he hated the most, it was the pike because pike are filled with bones and they're slimy and they're greasy and they just taste like fish. And they're not even an option when it comes to table fare. So I had been getting into cooking and, and whatnot at that age. I was probably, a you know, like a late teen. And at a very young age, I learned from my dad how to properly clean a pike boneless and I thought, man, if this was an opportunity of any sort, I'm going to, uh, I was at this cottage, the whole family was there, uncle was there, and he had, he had voiced his dislike for, for fish. And we were having a fish fry that night, and he was going to eat something else. And I grew up in a family where, I mean, I do it today, so I'm kind of a hypocrite, but I grew up in a family as a kid where, you know, picking, choosing to eat another meal, um, that, you know, wasn't the meal in front of you, you're, you're going to hell for the rest of your life, obviously, right? Like you, you respect your mother, you respect the food that's on the table. And even if you hate it, you just sort of power through it. And hopefully tomorrow things get a little bit better. And, um, even though I did maybe did dislike that rule as a kid, it's, uh, it's definitely stuck with me. Like you eat what's in front of you, other, other, you're kind of, otherwise you're kind of a piece of garbage. So I stuck with that. And this, this grown man in front of me, I just thought, man, you, you privileged man, you get to decide what you want to eat at the cottage with these lovely people. And we're having this amazing fish fry. We're, you know, doing up some fries and some taters and, and uh, frying up some fish. And he voiced that he wasn't having fish. He was going to eat something else. And I didn't want that to occur. So I said, I'm going to make the fish. I'm going to prepare it properly and you're going to eat it. <laughs> so, the fish passed its way around the table. Um, there was walleye mixed in with some pike and he grabbed a nice chunk of pike steak that landed on his plate and it was fried in a, a similar coating. I think, I think at the time we had used like a fry and magic or something like that. And, uh, it, he ate it and loved it. Um, and what I realized was that for him, he was most surprised that there weren't any bones in it. Um, and the bones were something that uh, for some people getting a, you know, biting down on something and having that bone in there and that just change of instant change of texture throws them off and they can't get over it for some reason. And I've, I've had that happen with certain foods. For me, it's kind of like slimier foods. If there's something that's like real slimy, I'm not super interested in it. And for him, it was, it was bone, right. And that, that texture. So, um, he loved the flavor of it. He liked the fact that it was fried. It was tasty. It reminded him of fried chicken a little bit and it didn't have this weird fish bone or the risk of, you know, choking or getting poked with something. And that really did open up my eyes to, Oh my gosh, everybody's picky about something. And if you can change that, um, and understand and identify what 
may be throwing them off. It might be flavor. It might be aroma. It might be texture, something. But if you can figure out a way to move around that a little bit, then it may be more accommodating for people to eat. And that's one of the things that I've found with, with bear meat, um, you know, cooking it a different way makes the textures different, makes the flavors different, makes the aromas different. Venison, I learned that at a very, very early age as well. We cooked overcooked venison all the time in our house and I hated it. I'm like, this tastes gamey. It's dry. It's not good. Let's eat this raw, you know, like let's just barely sear this stuff and see if it's still juicy. And it was, and it had more flavor and it didn't have that gamey flavor that comes out when you overcook it. So really preparation and back to where we started this conversation is like, man, preparation and, and the methods of cooking something are so key. Um, and, and they really shouldn't be overlooked, right? Because it changes the way that you think about an animal, right? People mistreat certain animals, fish species, four-legged animals, whatever they are, because of having a bad experience with it, which is crazy. I've seen people abuse pike, northern pike, because, ah, it's a greasy fish. They don't taste good anyway. And they actually, like, hurt a fish, right? And it blows my mind. But um, it's super easy to demonize something. And I'm not for that, right? I'm for uh, celebrating all types of critters and creatures that are that are living and breathing, whether it's a plant or a mushroom or a, a creature, and um, celebrating the fact that you know we're here to consume these things and absorb their energy. And and every time we eat something, we're we're consuming a piece of it, right? And we're consuming a piece of earth and time and history, and it's all going into our body. And it's so easy to just not think about that, right? Crack a can of Mountain Dew and drink it and not think anything about it. But when you're consuming something that's wild, there's, there's really, um, you know, it's, it's important things are happening that are really easy to ignore. Um, but for me, I think it's important to be thoughtful of those things. And, and again, bringing more people to an understanding of why those things are important and consuming food, like back to the fried fish conversation. Um, if you're catching something and you know you want to eat it, you want to enjoy it, and I think it may not be the healthiest way to do it all the time, and that's why I come up with all kinds of wild recipes that are not fried fish, but getting people into, into something um, and getting their palate used to those fish flavors and textures, deep fry that thing, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I appreciate your insight. And, and I honestly think that that's one thing that, that those of us who enjoy the outdoor sports, right? We have something that a lot of the folks in, in the big cities who only realize that food is something that comes from a package or a box or, or a bag, we see that, right? We see it from yeah. its natural state and, and the, the pursuit, the capture, the, the care, and then all the way to it makes its way on our plate. And I think that just that whole process is something that's, uh, I like like the way you phrased it. Something to be celebrated and and to uh, really take in, in the whole experience. You talked about fried fish, right? And so frying fish. There's as many different ways of frying fish as there are people dropping lures in the water, right? So yeah. give yeah. us the basics. Give us your idea of the basics. What like egg wash? You dip it in just plain flour first, dude. I mean, beer batter. Well, how would you go about preparing uh, fried fish? Yeah, so say I'm gonna let, let's talk about the the you know flour based coating method. Um, for me, I like it with water. Um, 
and I like to dip it a couple different times. So whether it's whether it's water, like something that's that's similar to water, beer is also really great. Um, something a little more loose. I like to get the fish fillet wet and then go into the dry mix, wet it again, and back into the dry mix. Because sometimes we've all had that uh, deep fried fish experience where you pull it out of the front and realize that there's really no coating on it, which the coating is where the flavor is coming from. And it's also where the texture of that crunch is coming from. Um, the double coat is definitely where it's at. And we have instructions on the back of our uh, catch and cook bags that, uh, that walk you through that process. Um, and that was something that we, you know, Jay and I walked through as we were developing it as well as just what's the procedure because for Jay, he really likes that crunchy texture. Um, there's the heat of the oil comes into play when you're looking at crunch factor. Um, but water is nothing, nothing happens to, um, water when you deep fry it, it just evaporates. Right. And when we're looking at things like milk and egg wash, um, an egg, will souffle when it hits heat, right? So it puffs up a little bit. Um, beer can kind of add a little bit of that puffy factor as well. Um, but usually when you're eating something that's got a beer batter on, it has that really thick um, baking powder type of, of coating on it where it like really puffs up. It's almost like a chicken ball from a Chinese restaurant where it's like a donut with a little tiny piece of meat inside. And I... I favor more mi more mish, more fish than coating, um, but you still need to develop enough of that layer of coating to get the flavor. So again, wet ingredient, whether it's just a plate with some water in it or beer or running it under the tap, wet it so it's a little sloppy. Get it in your dry mix so that it's dry. Let it all absorb um, all of the dry ingredients around it soak it again a little bit of your coating does come off but you're not cleaning it off because you've created this sticky dough matter around that fillet now um so wet it again dip it back in the dry and then into the deep fryer and that gives you that coating that um you sort of admire from the chicken restaurants where it's got some like thick chunks of whatever that might be, but they're the best parts and the parts that might flake off and fall to the bottom of the chicken box that you're picking out afterwards. Cause again, they're the best parts. It's uh, it's just building up those um, the, the layer of the coating. And what happens too, is that you're creating a little more surface area cause you end up getting these little pieces and chunks that stick to it almost like corn flakes. Right? So you get these wet pieces of, whatever it is, it's just pieces of batter essentially that end up sticking to the fish. And when you fry that, all of those little extra divots and things coming out protrusions fry up and that extra surface area creates a lot more crunch. And again, we're talking about methods, right? We could easily just choose one way that we do fish and uh, dip it in wet egg wash, throw it in flour, throw it in the fryer and be happy with it. Um, but there's a ton of different methods out there um, when it comes to preparation. And again, oil temperature is a factor, getting making sure that oil temp is above 350, floating somewhere between 350 and 370 and keeping it really consistently hot. That's really important when it comes to the food experience. If that temperature drops and our oil gets cold, we may end up with a non-crunchy texture to our coated fish 
and you give that to somebody who really enjoys um, fried chicken and they're not interested in eating fish and you're trying to convince them that fish is good, you just gave them a bad experience and even more of a reason to dislike fish, right? So for me, it's like, it's care, it's preparation, it's all of that. I'm just making sure that you're checking all those boxes off. And um, when I'm trying new things for food, I'm usually trying it on myself first to see what what works and what doesn't. And uh, putting myself in the shoes of somebody that um, could have a real good reason to dislike something and making tweaks based on those factors. So are you the type of person, do you put anything on your fried fish? Are you a lemon guy, a tartar guy? What do you do anything with your fish after it's fried? Yeah, I really like lemon, like citrus uh, by any means, like all all types of citrus is great on a fish. I really like lime as well. Um, So if I'm keeping it really simple, I'll do that. I've over the years, I've gotten a lot more into making, I'm going to use a real hipster term here and say aioli. um, But just I thought making, maybe you were going to throw out remoulade or something. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to get that fancy. But just a homemade mayonnaise, right? And homemade mayo is literally a vegetable or a canola oil into the blender, adding a couple eggs, a clove or two of garlic, um, uh, maybe, maybe a hit of uh, an apple cider vinegar or some lemon juice, and uh, I like chipotle as well. So I'll grab some like a chipotles and adobo from the can and add it in there, blend it on high. And as you add oil to that, as it's blending, it emulsifies it. And the more oil you add, the thicker it gets. So you end up with this real thick, fresh paste. And that is so good on fresh fish. You can also just take mayo from a bottle and squish it into a bowl and add lemon to it. And that's also fantastic. Um, so, so that's key, but I'm also, a uh, I've got a real um, guilty pleasure for hot sauces and I'm not one of those guys that likes the most extreme spice. I just like a nice flavorful hot sauce and like a Cholula or Valentina's Frank's is fine. You know, just something that has that vinegar sharp flavor to it. And I really like that on fish. I could eat that. I could, I could put hot sauce on literally everything. And I, I kind of do. No, I think that's a great tip. Um, You know, for anybody listening, change it up, mix it up. Don't get in the same rut of doing the same preparation, you know, in time in time out. Um, You know, I'm always experimenting with different techniques, types, flavor profiles, like you mentioned, it just makes it that much more interesting. And then when you do come back to your old way of frying fish, you're like, wow, this is really good. I forgot how good it was because you've tried so many different things. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just opens up your mind a little bit to different things. And again, we all get bored of certain foods, right? And there's certain foods that we absolutely love. So go back to the stuff that you love and that is tried and true and works, but don't be afraid to explore either, right? Like being a picky eater, so no, nobody appreci- appreciates a picky eater. Yeah. And if worst, <laughs> worst comes to worst, just eat some fried fish, right? That's right. Worst comes to worst, fried fish, that's definitely the way to go. Awesome. Well, Josh, thanks again. Um, you know, if anybody hasn't or is listening and wants to follow you, you know, check, check Josh out on Instagram, follow him on social media. He's always putting out a lot of great content. Um, look for catch and cook. I know that's something that, uh, those guys, uh, Jay and Josh are very passionate about and look forward to, you know, seeing the success of that. Um, again, Josh, thanks for joining us. If you're listening, stick around. We're going to be back with another segment in just a short bit. Um, but again, thanks Josh for joining us. Yeah, guys, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And um, all the best. Have a, have a wicked night with your podcast.
Welcome back to Shack Talk, and thanks for joining us for our second segment. We are going to dive into another species-driven topic, and this time we're going to be talking about lake trout. And lucky for us, we have a fellow Eskimo brand ambassador um, that is a lake trout nut. You may know him from his YouTube and TV show, Superior Angling. And so we'd like to welcome our, our guest for this segment, Grant Sorensen. Grant, welcome to Shack Talk. Yes, thank you guys very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. So for those of uh, our listeners that are listening, uh, Minnesota, the lake trout opener actually opened up just a little bit ago. Um, were you able to get out after that or what's on your radar for, for lake trout um, as we kind of transition into the ice season? Yeah, so January is always a, a fun time of year. You know, early season, you get after those walleyes and the end pan fish, but come January in February and in March and so on, you set your sights on, on lake trout. So I always look forward to, to this time of year. Um, I have not targeted targeted trout yet this winter, um, but it is on my hit list in the very, very near future. So, um, you know, we have lake trout. Living in northern Minnesota, we, you know, we just have access to tons of, of great lake trout water. Um, and on a normal year, all of Ontario and in Manitoba, but we all know that story this year. But uh, yeah, still, uh, still tons of great opportunity and great lakes here in uh, northern Minnesota. For our listeners, what area? I guess maybe maybe just uh, give a brief intro to our listeners. Maybe if somebody hasn't heard of of your show or yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know where you where do you live? Where do you primarily fish? And maybe just give us a little mm-hmm. background on kind of how you got started. Um, you know, doing the the filming gig. For sure. So yeah. So again, my name is, is Grant Sorensen. I'm born and raised in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, went to high school and college up here and stuck around just because there's such great uh, access to everything outdoors, fishing, hunting, snowmobiling, hiking, whatever you like to do outdoors. You know, Duluth is a, is a great place for that. Um you know, growing up, I always was a, a walleye and then like fisherman. But as I got into my high school years and college, definitely got into Lake Superior fishing. And that's kind of taken over my, my life lately is uh, just, just the, uh, you know, Lake Superior and, and definitely Lake Trout is kind of our, our niche and what we do. So um, I'm the owner of Superior Angling. We have a formal 30 minute TV show that airs on a ABC affiliate network in Northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and into the UP of Michigan. Um, then we, uh, have a YouTube channel and obviously Facebook and Instagram as well. But, um, so along with that, I also do guiding in the summertime for lake trout. Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, with our TV show, I'd say about 50% of our content is walleyes, crappies, um, you know, pike, muskie, bass, and the other 50% is lake trout. So um, trout are just, uh, it's just that species that is just so captivating to me, especially on Lake Superior. You know, there's just, you just never know what can happen in a, in a day of fishing, especially when you go after lake trout. I mean, there's just really no like upper limit to how big they can get. You know, I mean, I think that's kind of my favorite part about them is you go walleye fishing, you know, you catch a 31, 32 inch walleye. Like that's probably, you know, one of the bigger fish in the lake, but with lake trout, like there's no upper end, like, you know, there's 50, 60, 70, depending on what lakes you're fishing in, there's 80, 90 pound lake trout swimming out there. And, you know, just the, just the, you know, be on the same body of water as a fish of that caliber is, is pretty cool. You know, Grant, you jumped right in and you, uh, you, you took the first question I was going to ask you right right out of my mouth because I was going to ask what <laughs> what it was that drew you to lake trout and I think you you, yeah. you were quite eloquent in how you described it. 
Let's, this mm-hmm. is a species, a, yeah. this is a species segment, right? So we're talking about lake trout, that, that 50% of the content, and then all the mm-hmm. rest of it's divided up amongst the others, right? They get to fight for the scraps yep. of what's left. Yep. What, what is it when we talk about lake trout, what is it that would indicate to, to me, somebody who's never really went out and purposely targeted lake trout, what, what kind of lakes am I looking for? Do I have to look at? you know, stocking or netting results, or is there a, a kind of a, a stereotypical lake or lake that would uh, tell me that I could go there and catch those fish? Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. You know, obviously Lake Superior has lake trout and Lake Superior's, um, you know, it's a, it's a big body of water and, you know, there's little ice fishing that goes on. There is in the Apostle Islands and, you know, up in the Canadian waters, but, um, you know, aside from Lake Superior, you know, you primarily focus on, you know, Northern Minnesota. For a lake trout, a lake trout needs clear water to live and it needs access to deep water. You know, lake trout do spend a lot of time very, very shallow, even more shallower than, you know, most people would ever, ever guess, but they need clear water, they need cold water and they need deep water. So, um, you know, your lakes that are kind of, you know, bowls that, you know, are 20, 30, 40 feet, you know, there's probably not lake trout in there. So we're looking at, you know, like a, you know, like what, look at Lake of Woods, for example, pretty much all of the water in, you know, of Lake of the Woods and Minnesota waters, there's not, there's no lake trout in there because it's just, you know, it's just a shallow bowl. It's murky water. But as you move more north up towards, you know, Kenora and whatnot, it gets a lot deeper and the water gets a lot clearer. You have, you know, Cisco's and, and whitefish, which are, you know, main forage base for, for lake trout that they have to survive. So, you know, if you, if you just look at the state of Minnesota, you know, focus on like the upper right hand, you know, corner of the state up in the Arrowhead area and, you know, all, all, all those border waters up the Gunflint Trail and, you know, those are lakes that are, that are going to have lake trout. That's very helpful. Now, Grant, do these fish have seasonal move? You mentioned that they, they do come up really shallow, but they also like to have access to deep water. Are there seasonal movements that help us to kind of key in on where these fish are located at different times of the year? There, there are. I mean, lake trout are such a diverse fish. And, I mean, you can kind of look at, um, you know, lake trout on Lake Superior versus lake trout on inland lakes. I mean, it's, it's two different, you know, total ball games. But, you know, if, if you're looking at inland lakes, um, you know, primarily speaking, like lake trout are a very diverse fish, right? Like if you're, you know, fishing walleyes in February, you can pretty much assume the walleyes are going to be pretty, you know, 95% of the year fish are going to be, you know, pretty deep in the lake. That's not the case for lake trout. They're such a diverse fish. You know, you can literally catch them in two feet of water, or you can literally catch them in 200 feet of water. I mean, they're all over the water column, and they just don't follow the the main, like, migration rules that other fish, you know, have throughout the season. But that's what makes it fun. You know, there's always, you know, you, you can set up on a, on a spot, and you truly never know what's going to happen. Lake trout are a fish that are constantly swimming around. They're not going to sit on a rock like a smallmouth bass does in the wintertime. They're not going to, you know, live on a little point like a walleye does. They're constantly moving. They're very opportunistic. They're, you know, they, again, they live in clear water, so they're constantly swimming around looking for bait. These fish can see, you know, 100, 200 feet, you know, horizontally in the water column. And I've seen on my graph a lake trout rise 90 feet vertically in the water column to hit my bait. So these fish can see a long way, so they use that to their advantage. They're constantly swimming around looking for food, looking for forage. Um, you know, there's kind of the, the apex predator of these lakes. I think that's really cool. And for anybody that hasn't targeted lake trout, 
I highly suggest it. I mean, like you mentioned, watching those fish react on electronics or fishing after those fish, there's nothing quite like it. There's no other species typically that most people will chase through the ice that will act like that. Um, Grant, maybe walk us through why they can move the way that they do and, you know, talk a little bit about just kind of their aggressive nature. Yeah, I, you know, I always kind of, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a joke, but it's not really, I always, you know, if I have a buddy or someone with that hasn't caught lake trout before, I'm like, you know, watch your graph, but like, you're going to see a, a, you know, depending on what type of electronics you, you, you use, you're going to see a mark in your graph and you may think it's interference because it's moving so fast, but that's probably a lake trout. You know, these fish are just so aggressive. Um, and again, they can see so far. Um, they just, you know, they always, they're always going a hundred miles an hour. Um, they're not going to come up and sniff your bait and, you know, hmm, maybe I will hit it. Maybe I won't, you know, usually, you know, half the time you don't even graph them before, you know, your rod's doubled over and it's pulling out of your hand. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, they're just a, a super fun fish. They're always aggressive. Um, you know, whether they are pretty impacted by weather in the wintertime more so a lot more so than in the summertime. Um, you know, some summertime you know on a cloudy day with rain or you know with with wind and low pressure like you can you can catch lake trout but you get that weather in the winter time it makes it a little more tough my my best days for lake trout in the winter time are when it's super super cold like negative you know 10 negative 20 negative 30 and bright sunny skies like those are days to me that the, the lake trout are going to be on fire we talked a little bit about it too in the intro um, that lake trout season just opened up. What um, what type of season dates? I know they're different than most game fish uh, for at least the inland lakes. What type of season dates do um, do you have to follow for if you wanted to fish lake trout? Yeah, and I I just you know reference people to the to the Minnesota DNR website just because there are a lot of different regulations when it comes to trout fishing. Um, you know, in Minnesota we have lake trout, we have brook trout, we have rainbow trout, we have splake, and there's you know different regulations for all these fish whether you're inside the boundary waters or outside the boundary waters or on Lake Superior. You know, it's not just like a general walleye opener per se. You know, lake trout it's it's a lot different. So definitely refer to uh, the Minnesota. DNR, um, you know, regulations on, on that, but, you know, you can, you can bet, you know, come, you know, late January, February, March, you know, lake trout, you know, trout fishing is, is open, you know, around statewide and, you know, February and March are very, very good times to get out there and chase lake trout. All right. So we decide that, uh, we've got somebody who's new to ice fishing or we got somebody who's new to lake trout. They never chased lake trout before they've identified a lake, right? Northern Minnesota Lake has all of the attributes that you talked about, Grant. They know that that there's lake trout there. You mentioned just the behavioral kind of I when you described it, it sounded like it's not they're not predictable, right? Because it can be at two feet of water, they can be down at two hundred feet mm-hmm. of water. So mm-hmm. how do you go about going out on the ice and saying, okay, we're gonna target lake trout and here's where we're gonna start looking? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a and that's a great question. And that's, you know, it's something that you, you think about about every day and another you know another note to this is that you know 
as we mentioned, lake trout live in very deep lakes. And on these very deep lakes, a lot of times your contour maps, like your Navionics on your phone or the, even like a Navionics or Lake Master chip for these lakes aren't 100% correct. And, you know, if, you, if you're an avid lake trout angler, it's kind of nice because you can, you know, have some hidden spots that aren't truly published. But, you know, but they're, they're close enough to give you a good general idea um, to, to where to start. I love if I see a... If, you know, and, and a lot of times too, I'm looking for, you know, structure above the water. If I see a big cliff face or a big cliff edge, I love that, you know, I'll fish that all day because, um, you know, it's just kind of a, a wall or a barrier for those trout to cruise and push bait around and it, you know, they can use it to their advantage. So if I, you know, you know, scanning, if I'm on my snowmobile driving around and I see a, a rock wall, you can bet I'm going to go drill a couple of holes and fish it for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And that's another thing too, is that, um, you know, lake trout, again, they can see very, very far. They're very aggressive. If there's a lake trout in the area, there's a chance, you know, when you, when you drill your hole within that first five to 10 minutes, you're either going to catch a fish or you're not. So, you know, I'll be very impatient when I fish. I rarely fish inside a, you know, I obviously have, you know, my Eskimo host, uh, you know, haul all my gear and, you know, set up a heater on those super cold days, but, you know, just staying mobile, um, fish a spot for 10, 20 minutes and then move on. Um, because Lake Trout, you know, again, it's clear water. They're very opportunistic. They're, they're either going to be there and, you know, be aggressive or not. But, you know, you can kind of look at it too, like, you know, fishing walleyes too. You, you find a steep break line or a, a isolated hump in the middle of the lake like that's going to be a structure that's going to hold fish too but uh um again just you know you can uh, on average you know if you wanted a good depth for inland lake lake trout um 35 to 45 50 feet like that's that's a good starting point uh, you know and then you can feel it out from there but uh you know you again you can very well go in, in 10 feet of water and sight fish these fish sometimes but you know a general rule of thumb starting out on you know on structure you know shoreline breaks or uh, maybe an underwater point in that 35 to 45 50 foot range would be a great starting point all right, so now we've broken down a lake. We've, you know, maybe trying to figure out exactly where to target these fish. What type of setup um, are you using when you're going after these fish? Because I'm assuming as big as these fish can get, your normal walleye panfish gear isn't going to cut it. Yeah, and that's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a something you as an angler has to has to decide. You know, for me, I'm, you know, I'm out there for for the fun of it. You know, I want to, you know, and I I rarely keep fish, so I, you know, I'm just out there for the fun of catching early. So I love to use, you know, a lighter weight gear approach to this. So a lot of my rods for lake trout are, you know, 36, 38 inch medium heavy, you know, rods that would be a good like, you know, Lake Winnipeg walleye rod. That's going to be a great lake trout rod um through the ice so um you know it's different if i'm on lake superior and i'm having to use you know three three to eight ounce lures to get down to 100 200 feet of water you know in the lake you know it's there's it's shallower generally you're fishing shallower there's not much current that comes into play you know as contrasted with lake superior so you can get by using you know a quarter ounce or you know a half ounce lures you know combined with a, a kind of a more of a heavy style walleye rod but you definitely want backbone. You definitely want, um, you know, a, you know, a size, maybe a little bit bigger reel because the lake truck's not just going to run to bottom like a walleye does. You know, they're going to run out horizontally and, you know, peel some drag and, you know, try to, try to get away from you. So yeah, you definitely have to be, uh, have to be prepared. Um, you know, I have a reel with a good drag. Um, another kind of tip that I've noticed is, you know, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of your good lake trout fishing is on those super, super cold days. 
and um, you know, very high quality reels. A lot of times they freeze up easily because they're so lightweight and so geared for high performance. A lot of times they freeze up in the winter time. So, you know, just find a reel that you're comfortable with and you know, that you can trust on those super cold days for that drag to function. Right. Um, because those lake trout, once they hit, they, uh, they'll peel some drag on you. Okay. So now my next question, which is comes right off of this, this whole discussion about a rod reel combo that you're going to use. So your description of the fact that they can see so well would tell me that I probably would want to use like a monofilament or a fluorocarbon, but yet if you're fishing a hundred feet of water, that's a lot of stretch, like at least in monofilament. So Mm -hmm. what are you doing for line? Are you using a braid? Are you putting a leader on there? Are you using, um, what what are you using? Yeah, I, you know, and when I go to this, I'll have some of, of, of both braid and, and mono rigged up. But, uh, you know, on those super cold days, braid is, braid is tough. But, um, you know, ideal in an ideal world, yeah, you know, a 12-pound braid down to a 10-pound test floral leader. Like, that's that's all you need right there. I think any heavier than that, you're, you know, you're not, you know, if you break off 10-pound fluorocarbon on the lake trout, you know, it's it's not the line. It's your drag wasn't set right. So, um, yeah, you know, that's kind of, that's that's plenty of, of power to, to get the fish up up the hole, especially on most Minnesota lakes where your average lake trout's gonna be, you know, two, three, four, five pounds. And yes, there's you know, there's twenties and twenty five pounders out there. There's, you know, plenty of them and I know a couple guys caught some, you know, over the over the weekend on Lake Trout opener. Um, you know, but you but again your average fish is gonna be two to five pounds. But you know, a three pound lake trout fights like a you know, eight pound pike. Like it's it's fun. It's uh it's a blast. But um but again, yeah, just you know, I'll, I'll if I can get away with braid, I'll use braid on a floral leader. And then, you know, in terms of lures, um, a big spoon, like a, a, a large, larger spoon that just flutters. There's no need to put any bait on it. It's again, a lake truck's not going to come up and sniff your lure and, you know, decide if he wants to hit it or not. He's just going to fly in and, and whack it. But, you know, silvers are good. Uh, whites, you can never go wrong with white for lake trout, whether, no, no matter what lake you're on, no matter what time of year, white is always a, a go-to color for me. Okay, so biologically speaking, Grant, you have a, you know, I'm out fishing around here, my home area. Uh, I pull a crappie out of 30, 40 feet of water, and, you know, the responsible thing in that scenario is not to release that fish, right? Because um, their swim bladder's coming up into their mouth. That fish is is not going to survive long-term. At least the odds are not in its favor. Um, what it, How does that work with lake trout? Because I know they're a little bit different, right? So pulling them out of, 50, 60, 70, 80 plus feet of water. Yep. And, you know, that's, that's something too, that, um, you know, I, I definitely acknowledge and it is uh, an important factor to, to consider. Um, but when we're strictly talking about ice fishing, there's really no need to, to worry about what depth of water a lake trout comes out of. Um, you know, hooking mortality and release mortality definitely comes into play in the summertime when water temperatures exceed 65 degrees. Um, but in the wintertime, like these fish naturally, will swim from the bottom, they'll swim up 90, 100, 110 feet in a matter of seconds, just naturally on their own. Lake Trout and Lake Superior do this naturally on their own, and they'll go from depths of 600 feet to the surface in a very, very short period of time. They'll do that multiple times a day. So, you know, they're one of the only fish that has that ability to, um, you know, adjust their air bladders and not have that take a, a detrimental impact on on the on the fish going from deep water to shallow water. So, yeah, I mean, 50, 60 feet, you know, catching lake trout out of that depth, like there's zero worries whatsoever in terms of, you know, the fish 
having, you know, damage from, you know, as a crappie would come out of deep water. And for anybody that hasn't experienced watching air bubbles coming out of your hole when you're ice fishing, when the fish is below the ice, those, those fish are doing that. They're releasing their air bladder. They're burping it out. I mean, even times when you get the fish out on the ice, they're, they're still burping that air out. It's something that is really unique to, to trout. And uh, it's kind of, kind of, kind of interesting when you're experiencing it for the first time. Yeah, it's always uh, exhilarating when you, you hook a lake trout and, you know, two minutes later you see a ton of air bubbles come up. You know, it's it's, it's pretty cool seeing that. But, yeah, it happens all the, all the time. The, the bubbles come and, and then the trout comes. But, yeah, it's just, it's just natural for them to do when they're, uh, yeah, again, it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. So, yeah, Grant, I know you talked a little bit about this, the, you know, the average size in the Minnesota lakes. What is your typical size if you were going to keep a fish and eat it? Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> on Lake Superior, so on Lake Superior, there's different subspecies of, of lake trout. And Lake Superior is kind of pretty much one of the only lakes in the, in the world that has defined subspecies. Um, but your inland trout are all, all pretty much the same. But, you know, typically as a, as a trout gets bigger, it's going to get more and more fat on it. And that fat directly is like inside the meat so you know you fillet a, a fat walleye there's really no fat in like impaled inside the inside the meat but it is on lake trout um so you know those fish you know eight pounds and over probably aren't good to eat if you get you know if you want to throw one in the smoker sure it, it'll it'll be palatable then but um you know for for frying lake trout or baking them you know those two or three four pounders are are ideal and uh they are delicious and uh you know i always say you know lake trout are you know it can be you know just as good as as a walleye but you know you, you got to take care of the meat so you know I, if i catch one that i i want to uh i want to keep i'll bleed it out on the ice and i you know once i get that fish and at home I want to um you know fillet it and keep that meat as cold and dry as possible if I keep it cold and dry as possible it's going to be very very good um like a piece of like a fillet of, of crappie you know you can soak in a bowl of water and kind of clean it out that way but if you do that with lake trout it kind of gets kind of mushy but uh you know I like to fillet them you know quickly rinse the fillet off pat it dry with the paper towel and get it right in the fridge and it's uh, absolutely delicious so, uh, Grant, what's your favorite way to prepare lake trout? Is it is it a fry? Is it a grill? Is it a smoke? Yeah, I like to uh, cut them on, on a pellet grill, skin side down on tin foil, um, put some lemon pepper, a little bit of garlic, a lemon or two on there, and yeah, um, again, it, they just have a great natural taste to them. And again, those smaller ones have little to no fat in the, in their meat, so it's uh, they are very very delicious. They sound absolutely delicious. Um, so we talked a little bit about what size we might keep. Now let's, let's just flip that and look at the other end of the spectrum. You said there's really no top end when it comes to lake trout, but there's gotta be some kind of a, a standard trophy, right? And so if I'm, if okay. I'm new to, to lake trout, what is that mark that we're going to say, okay, we hit or eclipse this mark. We're either taking that trophy or we're going to release it with measurements and get a replica made. I would say uh, a 40 inch lake trout is comparable to a 30 inch walleye. Um, you know, but you know, if, you, if you're just getting started, like a 35, 36 inch trout is a heck of a trout. And, you know, and, and again, lake trout differ so much from, from, you know, walleye, for instance, let's say you catch a 30 inch walleye, you know, chances are that fish probably weighs nine to nine and a half, maybe 10 pounds. 
Um, I've caught 40 inch lake trout that weigh 16 pounds and I've caught 40 inch lake trout that weigh 36 pounds. So, um, they just vary so, so much, you know, that's just the fun, like there, there's no two lake trout out there that are the same. So again, that just goes back to the, the you, you never know, you know, the mystery of it, you know, you just never know what that fish you're going to hook can be. So it could be a, you know, a long and skinny trout, or it could be a trout that, you know, barely fits through the hole because it's it's so obese so it's yeah it's just cool how how much they differ but yeah again you know uh you know 30 there's nothing wrong with a 36 inch trout i'd take that any day you know they're very very respectable fish but if you're talking trophy caliber like you know a 40 inch is a good lake trout all right grant couple more questions just a little bit on on the personal side here before we wrap up this segment what is your personal best lake trout that you've caught yeah, I've got one that was, um, we cracked, it cracked 50 pounds. So it drowned it on a 50 pound scale when we had it in the net and, uh, weighed it. So, um, wow. I, 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 yeah, I can't, I don't remember exactly how, how long it was, but it was up there in like 45, 40, 46 inches, somewhere right in there. Um, yeah. So, I mean, they, they get big and, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it was a, a fun time, but yeah, again, it's all, you know, there's bigger fish out there, you know, you talk to, talk to some people on, on a few certain lakes and, you know, there's, you know, records of, you know, 60, 70, 80 pound fish, you know, that are, that are out there that have been caught in nets and yeah. So there's just no upper end limit to them. That's what keeps you going back out, right? It does. It does. Yeah, it so, does. Yeah. Yeah. And on uh, the past, this past summer, you know, on our, on our guide trips that we run, you know, we saw a lot of, you know, 40 inch fish we were, for a while there, we were averaging one forty inch fish per, per trip. And uh, there was one trip where we, we doubled up, we had two rods go up at the, at the same time. And it was a, we had a 45 and a 42. So, you know, so, you know, again, you know, I, I compare a 45 inch lake trout to like a 33 inch walleye, you know, it, it's big, they're, they're rare fish. Did you catch your personal best through the ice or was that open water? That was, that was open water. Um, you know, personal best through the ice. We're probably looking at 25, 26 pounds. I don't think I've cracked 30 through the ice, but uh, hopefully we can get some ice on Lake Superior yet this winter and uh, try to break that record. All right. So do you have a bucket list lake trout destination? I know there's some of those giant trophy lakes up in Canada and, you know, hopefully someday soon we'll be able to get back up there, but what's mm-hmm. your, what's your bucket list destination? <laughs> My bucket list destination is a, it's a, it's a lake that I, I fish a lot <laughs> because, you know, that's the thing about me is, you know, if there's something on my mind, I'm going to, I'm going to go do it. So, you know, it, it's definitely Lake Nipigan in, in Ontario and it's only a four and a half, five hour drive from my house. And, you know, yes, it's a, you know, but if you're talking bucket list that you haven't fished, I'd have to say it'd be, you know, a great bear, great slave lake way up there. But, you know, in terms of like a realistic bucket list trip, like there's no better lake than Lake Nipigan in my mind. That is incredible, Grant. And folks, we're we're talking with Grant Sorensen, Superior Angling. We're talking lake trout. And uh, I just so appreciate, Grant, your willingness to share all of your knowledge and information and experience about lake trout because personally for me it's a fish I've never had the I've never had the opportunity to actually go out and pursue intentionally. And um, it's that in and it of itself is definitely on my bucket list. If we have listeners to the podcast who might have additional questions or or maybe they want to come up to Duluth, they want to book a guide trip with you and, and go on out and experience this for themselves, 
how can they find you and how can they get in touch? Yeah, just superiorangling.com. Um, I have a guide form on there. You know, look us up on on, the, on all the social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Um, you know, grant at superiorangling.com is my email address. You know, we, you know, again, lake trout is, a, it's a, it's a, again, yeah, it's a, it's a type of fishing that a lot of people aren't really comfortable with and don't have a lot of confidence in. So, you know, we, we get tons of, of messages and requests and we try to respond to everybody and just help people out because it's, you know, it's definitely a, a fun, fun fish to, to target. And once you start targeting them, it's hard to, hard, hard to go back and fish anything else besides trout, but yeah, don't be afraid to reach out with any questions you have. Um, and then we'll do our best to, to answer those and help you out. Fantastic. Thank Grant. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Yes, thank you guys very much for the opportunity. Folks, stick around. We've got a whole nother segment left up ahead of us. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Shack Talk. Welcome back to our third and final segment of Shack Talk. And boy, oh boy, Anthony, we have had a good one here talking a little catch and cook with Josh McFadden. You know, we've talked uh, leg trout with Grant Sorensen. We have had a great lineup for this episode, and we're going to round it out with a really exciting guest here. Uh, Mr. Adam Walton of Pike Pole Guide Service, South Central Wisconsin, this is a guy that's out there. He does a ton with uh, educating folks about ice safety. He does a ton of educating kids. Really appreciate all that he does for the sport and, and the folks that are involved. Adam, welcome to Shack Talk. Hey, I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. I, I can't wait to, to learn more about you and, and uh, even more about what you do and what's gotten you into fishing. This is our social fish dancing segment which means, hey, during the pandemic, we have lost a lot of the opportunity to gather as a group and, and hang out and talk fishing and all the fun stuff like that, tell stories and lies and that sort of thing. But that's what we're going to do now. My, you know, we're doing it virtually, but we're going we're gonna to talk and, and we're going to talk fishing. Adam, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you've grown this passion for ice fishing and kind of where you've gotten to this point. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've... Um... I've been very fortunate in life and had some great mentors. I've grown up in the outdoors, uh, grandfathers, great father, uh, great grandfathers, and my dad himself. Um, even even my mom too. Uh, as a little kid, I've been been fishing ever since I can remember. I grew up on uh, the Lake Koshkanon Rock River system, which is our home waters, about two miles away from my house. And um, the farm I grew up on, which is still my parents' farm, is actually located on the Rock River. So as a kid, I was kind of like the the newer version of uh, of, of Huck Finn. I spent all my time on the river, any free moment I had, and learned everything about it that I could, and, and fishing in general, and I absolutely loved it. And the passion just just really took off from there, and and I got into um, you know just learning more and more and more, and things just grew to the point where we're at today. And Adam, cool. you. Uh... You, you have a guide service. You also have another job. You, you work as a first responder. You've been doing that for many years. How do you balance the two of those and, and your family and all the other things you've got going on? That's a great question. I'm still still trying to figure that out. It's a, it's an ongoing thing. 
Um, the good thing about the, the, the fire department, so I'm, I'm a firefighter paramedic as well for state of Wisconsin. Very fortunate also to get that, that job, something I wanted to do um, since I was a little kid as well. And, you know, I've had both of these dreams and they've, they've both come true for me. And I just I try to, to make them both continue to, to grow and happen. Um, as far as time balance and management, it's an everyday chore, but thankfully my wife calls it OCD. I call it organization. So I got a pretty good balance on uh, uh, how we manage everything. Uh, the fire department, I work 24-hour shifts. So the way that works out is I work 10 days a month at the fire department. The other 20 days, I run the guide service. But at this, uh, at now, at the, since we've grown, I actually have two other guides that help me. So um, we run trips seven days a week, even if I'm at the station one day. These guys might be running trips for me as well. So it, um, it has worked out pretty well in that aspect. Uh, as far as family, that uh, that that's another daily balance as well. Like uh, I mentioned before we started, I got three boys, ages four, six, and seven, and and they are a uh, a handful to say the least. But I wouldn't have it any other way. So it is 110 miles an hour from 6 a.m. until 10 o'clock at night every single day, seven days a week. But we make it work. It takes a village to raise them, right? Like yeah, and well, run either- and run the business. Absolutely true. You know, um, we're very fortunate to have our parents um, around here, both my wife and I, and they have helped out tremendously with, with helping, you know, take the boys for a day or just sharing the, sharing the love, especially during COVID, you know, everything's isolated. Um, our kids are in virtual school, but they still go out to grandpa and grandma's house to hang out and do farm stuff out there. And, and I'll be running trips and my wife will be working and it just, it works well, but you're absolutely right. We have a very good support system to make that work well. You have to, don't you? And I mean, in all honesty, Adam and, and Anthony, I think both of you would agree that when you have a, a passion like the outdoors or it, maybe it doesn't even have to be the outdoors, right? But balancing that with, uh, with your spouse or significant other, with your kids, with your job, that's always a challenge. I mean, I, I'd love to be fishing 24 seven, right? But, right. Reality is we, we got to fit it in, in the time we have available. And so that's always a challenge. What, what's been your perception, Adam, here during COVID? You brought up COVID about how things are different, you know, with your kids in school, but what about the, the sport? What about your guide business? Have you seen a difference uh, since the pandemic started? So it's been a huge difference as far as um, volume. And I've always said that, you know, where you see other businesses fail, something else excels you know, no matter what, what's going on. And I hate to see any businesses fail, especially we work very closely to the, the restaurants, especially on Lake Koshkodon with our clients, um, Airbnbs, hotels, accommodations for our clients and seeing these businesses struggle, you know, truly breaks my heart. Um, the flip side of that though, is my guide service and a lot of friends that guide, uh, we've never been busier. You know, people are just sick of being pent up in their house, especially in Illinois where their regulations are a little bit different. We're fairly close to Illinois. So we get a lot of call volume coming out of there. And to be honest with you, um, this has been the craziest season I've ever had for ice and open water. Our ice season is already booked up solid and we're booking open water trips already into June. So it's, it's just nonstop. So it, it's different, you know, I mean, we're, we're typically fairly busy, but not like this. And it's, that's probably the biggest change that I've seen as, uh, as far as a business owner in this field. Um, 
you know, that we've had to implement some things too, because as a first responder, I certainly appreciate the severity of this, this virus of unfortunately seeing firsthand the damage and destruction that this has done. So we definitely respect it. So when we do take clients out, um, everybody's assigned to their own shack, social distancing and whatnot. Masks are required if you're within uh, six feet of another client that you don't know or didn't come with. And, you know, we've implemented these little safety measures into how we run trips and hopefully are, are making a difference by still getting out there and getting people out of their house to enjoy something that's, that's definitely fun. We've talked about a lot in previous episodes and segments about the influx of new anglers. Are you, are you seeing an influx of people that maybe haven't even gotten out before that are coming to a guide to maybe learn things from a, from a guide rather than trying to go out on their own and do it? A tremendous amount of those people. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the thing that we offer through our guide service is uh, an educational type experience. So that's something that's been really important to me. I started this business many years ago to basically focus on people with PTSD, veterans, kids, and to get them out fishing. I tried to figure out how to do it for free. And you guys well know uh, it's commercial insurance, fuel, boat payments, all that stuff, uh, unfortunately costs money. So, you know, in order to do it, I had to, to put a cost to it, but we figured out how to do it, keep the price low. And <clears throat> that has grown from there in one thing that's never changed is the educational aspect. That's something that myself and my other two guides are, are really focused on. You know, catching fish is a bonus. Obviously, we want you to catch fish, but we can guarantee that we can hopefully teach you something or even us learn something from you, and we can share information, and everybody becomes a better angler because of it. With that said, to go back to your original question, yeah, we get a lot of new anglers because that's right on our website that, our focus out there is education. We're going to take time to show you how to set a tip up, up for pike, how to set a tip up, up for walleye, you know, all these different little things. Um, fortunate enough to be sponsored with hummingbirds. So I'm pretty keen on how to read sonar. So we take a lot of time to show people how to understand their hummingbird unit, read that. So that has driven uh, customers to us too, just because they're, they're looking for that aspect of it. That's a great perspective, Adam, when you look at it from an educational perspective, because, you know, it's the, you give a man a fish, he's, he's going to eat. If you teach a man to fish, he's going to eat the rest of his life. And you're kind of doing that exactly. when, when you take somebody out as a client. Right. And we're, we really love taking kids out too, because, you know, the kids, you know, we get all these kids that might've caught a bluegill off a pier or whatnot, but when we can take them out and land a, a 30 plus inch pike, it's pretty hard to beat those smiles. And there, there's something uh, very rewarding about that. You know, both, you know, we get a rewarding experiences working on the fire department, being able to help people. You get rewarding experiences on the ice, being able to provide something that kid has never had before, that dad has never had before. So it's, it's just, it's just fun. That's awesome. Now you have uh, your guide service name is Pike Pole Guide Service. Uh, you've mentioned catching a 30 inch pike, you know, on a big pike. You obviously have an affinity to, to catch and pike. Is that one of your favorites? Is that just one that you you, you catch often, or, or what, how did that all come to be? So it's funny you say that. I didn't think the name of my business through very well. It made sense to me, but after I started my business, I, I quickly realized I, I, I should have done something different. So pike pole is actually has nothing with pike the fish. 
A pike pole is a tool that we use in the fire service to uh, tear down drywall, to overhaul, to get into areas that might have a hidden fire. But pike poles also were used by ice anglers and in the whale industry before the fire service way back in the day. So it was a tool that was common use between the fishing industry and firefighting. So that's where the name came from. However, once I put that on there with a pike holding a pike pole, everybody thought, oh, you guys, this fish for pike. So I had to overcome, I had to do a lot of marketing to overcome that, uh, that uh, uh, perception of our business. But uh, honestly, our forte is walleye. Um, you know, I fished, uh, I've been able to fish some of the, the tournaments with that. And the main walleye that are the main fish that we go after is walleye for clients. But yeah, we catch quite a few pike as well. But, you know, it's a multi-species guide service. Lessons learned the hard way. Well, and lessons learned right here on this podcast, because uh, I would have no idea what a pike pole was, and now I know. That's pretty cool. Tell us a little bit more about your part of the world. You, you primarily fish for a walleye, but what kind of lakes? You fish in lakes, rivers. What are you doing through the ice? Uh, sure. So the, the lake I grew up on, the Rock River system at Koshkin, is actually a very big system. Um, Rock River starts at Horicon Marsh in central Wisconsin and extends all the way down into Illinois and dumps it in the Mississippi. So it's a pretty big river. And Lake Koshkanon is right in the middle of it. So river comes in and river goes out. And Koshkanon itself is about 10,000 plus acres. So it's quite a large lake. However, its max depth is seven feet with an average depth of about five. So it's a really shallow lake. And it can be a little difficult to fish. But, you know, like I said, I've had a lot of mentors and a lot of uh, growing up on that lake. So we do fairly well on it for the most part. Uh, obviously, we always have our days. But generally speaking, uh, it's a really good fishery. Uh, the walleyes and pike out there are stocked, and it's a, it's a great fishery for that. The forage base out there is phenomenal. It's got a good uh, population of panfish, which are pretty big. We were pulling out uh, 12 to 13-inch perch the other day, and that's you know, a, a pretty average size out there. Don't get me wrong. You'll get some smaller, but... Um, it's not necessarily a numbers game out there, but size is is definitely there. Earlier this year, we got a 41 and three quarter inch pike out of that system, so there there's some big, big fish in there. Like I said, that's that's good water. Adam, where where Anthony and I live, and and you know we're up probably a fair bit north of you, and if you just looked equally at at a, at a north south range, five to seven foot of water. You know, in our world, that thing is probably going to freeze out and have winter kill two or three out of five years. Do you ever run across that in your in your area? So the fact that we got a river system that runs through that lake uh, helps it tremendously. Um, the other thing, too, is there's about 80% mud. So the vegetation is more back in the base. The main uh, part of the lake is, is not a lot of vegetation, whereas where you get your winter kill either high oxygen or low oxygen from dead weeds, obviously. So we don't have as many weeds there. That, that definitely helps. Uh, with that said, I think it was two years ago, we had a fish kill in one of the bays. And you, it was that crystal clear ice that you could see right down the bottom of the lake. Obviously, it's only three feet at that spot. And you could see the weeds. And there's a bunch of dead fish up underneath the ice. And everybody's like, oh, God, you know, winter kill in low oxygen. And that's what we were thinking because that's, you know, typically what happened. Um, however, you know, we talked to DNR, they came out and sampled the, the uh, water in multiple spots. And what they found was um, Koshkanon's a little bit of an anomaly when it comes to this, but it, it, that, that clear ice created a greenhouse effect. 
So the weeds were still photosynthesizing and creating oxygen. And what happened was they increased the oxygen underneath there where it was super saturated instead of being the opposite of that. And what the DNR, the way they um, explained it to me is the fish basically, you know how divers get the bends, they get the little air embolisms in their bloodstream. That's what happened to the fish. You get these air embolisms, excuse me, embolisms in their bloodstream and basically kills them. And so super saturated oxygen levels is what caused that fish kill in there a couple of years ago, which I was greatly surprised. So yeah, you see it once in a while, but not necessarily what you would expect. Being on a river system, I know part of being a firefighter, you're always talking about safety and precautions. We talked a little bit about the COVID precautions, but how about the ice? I know the ice up here has been really, really variable this year. What's the ice like down there? And, and what are you doing down there to guys, for you guys to be safe as you're taking clients out? Sure. That's a great question. That's something that we, we really drive home every year. Uh, we, my, excuse me, myself and other two guides go out and do ice reports early in the season. We try to do a weekly ice report as ice is starting to form to keep people updated on what's going on. Um, the biggest thing to remember on Koshkanon is we try to stress is where there's 10 inches doesn't mean it's 10 inches across the lake. And you get a lot of people from out of state come out here, check ice one time. Oh, yeah, we're good. We got 10 inches. Well, it's a shallow lake. When shallow lakes come springs. So we found – you know, even just the other day, there's spots out there where there's only three inches of ice and there's spots that are 14 inches of ice. That system greater, uh, varies greatly. So you really need to know where you're going out there. Even with that said, we've put a quad through the, a seam one night at 11 o'clock at night. You know, things still happen even when you think you know what you're doing. It's that, that complacency thing that comes around and bites you in the ass once in a while. It happens. But uh, it's humbling. But that lake is is one of those type of lakes. Uh, with that said, though, we try to always stress safety to everybody. We do these videos. Um, we've done a couple videos where I've gone in the water without any safety clothes on, just to like a regular angler to show how cold water shock affects your body, how that takes your breath away, how not to panic, and then uh, show a couple ways to get out. Um, we've done that with Larry Smith, too, on a, on a show, and that – um, that aired, I think, on, on Fox Sports around our area as well, and hopefully got the message out to people and that, uh, you know, maybe make a difference if something fall, if you fall through that you, you kind of know what to expect. It, was, it sucked to make, though. <laughs> I bet it did. <laughs> but, you know, it does give you – yeah, it would suck, but it gives you the perspective, right, of exactly what that experience yeah, is, and I'm sure it gives you a lot of respect for it too. It, it did. It did. And I think if there's any new listeners or people that are new to the sport listening, you know, take a minute and watch an ice safety video. Watch, you know, like you explained, what happens when you fall through the ice, how to get out of the ice. It may never happen to you, but if it does, at least you have that little bit of knowledge in case it, if you are unfortunate and go through the ice, it's could mean the difference between life and death, honestly. It absolutely can. And if anybody wants to check out those two videos that we did, we have them on our website on the um, video section and the tabs at the, at the top of the page. Adam, what is that? On, uh, our YouTube channel. What is that website? It's, just uh, so folks Pike, know. Yeah, it's uh, pikepolefishing.com. P-I-K-E-P-O-L-E fishing.com. I think they're on our Facebook page as well. 
that's really good information. And, and like I said, you know, take a minute, check those things out, you know, check out Adam's website. If you're in that area looking to get out, or if you know somebody in that area, I mean, like Adam said, him and his guides, they're out there, they're checking things. They know the water, they, you know, they know how to be safe and they're, they're going to have the resources to teach you what you need to know. Even if you've been out before, anybody that can go out on the ice with a guide, I feel like you, you learn just that much more, you know, you're not struggling through those things on your own. You're able to take things from another person and, and learn from that experience and be able to use that the next time you go out. And we carry all our, you know, the safety equipment too, the throw bags, the throw cushions, ice picks. So we always, when we go on trips, we always like to take time to teach clients about that too. So we might have some downtime between bags of our tip up fishing and, we like to make a bullseye out in the snow and have people actually practice throwing a, a throw bag or a cushion into this bullseye to simulate a victim. And it's surprising, you know, you'd be surprised at how hard that is to do, especially if it's windy to get that on target. But that's something that, you know, that a lot of people have got a lot of good feedback about that. You know, this little thing, it takes 10, 15 minutes can make a big difference. That's a great idea. Whether it's a new person that's never been on the ice before, whether it's a, a, young kid or a teenager to, to actually practice those things. And like you say, it, you have that downtime when you're out there and, and that's a good application. You know, I mean, they're going to learn something from it. They're going to have a, a little respect for what it takes to, you know, potentially get a, a life-saving device to someone if they fall through. And you know, quite honestly, the biggest thing I think I look at this year and I realize is the fact that, um, you can't really just say, yep, we've gotten to a certain date on the calendar and so the ice is good enough and we don't have to worry about it anymore, right? You know, you, there's variation throughout the whole region where we have ice-covered water. And we've been seeing that, I think, the last three years. It's just been really up and down. You know, we got ice at Christmas time and all of a sudden we lose it because we get a, a warm spell that comes in with 30-mile-hour winds and breaks all the ice up and we got to restart. That's really been a, a theme here. Um, it's frustrating as you, <laughs> as everybody, as everybody knows that ice fishes, but, um, you know, it, it is what it is adapt and overcome, right? That's right. That's part of the challenge. And part of what, uh, brings us back every single year is to, to figure right. those puzzle pieces out and get it, uh, get ourselves in a position to catch those fish. Adam, this is kind of the point where we get to have some fun and ask you a few fun questions here. So, so. I, was, I was in the military and I'm a firefighter, so. I got to go ahead. Okay. So outside of your home water, is there a, a, a favorite body of water that you love to fish? Um, Green Bay. Why yeah, so? I love, I love Green Bay. What, what about Green Bay is, is uh, so appealing to you? I've never been there myself. So. Yeah, the, the walleye fishery up there is, is second to none, uh, you know, as, as far as proximity to us, I know there's some, some better fisheries, uh, Canada and, Lake of the Woods and whatnot, but Green Bay is only a two and a half hour drive from us. And I actually guide there too, as well. I, I, I did get my captain's license so I can, uh, Rock River being a federal water, I was, had to get it, but then it opened up the opportunity to guide in Green Bay and Winnebago as well. So I do do guide trips up there. Um, most of those are like cancer benefit donations or auction type guide trips when we go up there. But if I'm just fun fishing, and I could pick where to go, that, that, that'd be where it is. 
it's just, uh, there's something about it, you know, it's such a big water. There's not a lot of crowds for the most part. And if there is, you can find somewhere else and there's not, and there's still fish and the fish up there are just good. They're, they're great quality, typically good action. And it's hard to beat. I know you talked a little bit about walleyes. Is that probably your favorite or target species that you're going after? It, it is, uh, when I guide, I would say like if I'm catching fish for fish fry though, uh, perch and bluegill, my favorites. Little right, another short question. So, so Adam, you realize you're talking to a guy here who just iced a massive perch. How big was it, Anthony? Uh, the one that I caught that you're probably talking about is just over 15 inches, just shy of 15 and a quarter. That actually wasn't a perch, Anthony. That was a walleye in disguise. Yeah, it was one of those North Dakota peacock bass. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, it was a big fish. <laughs> All right, one more one more question for you. Um, we have a lot of people that listen, you know, new to the sport. Maybe they have kids. You have kids yourself that you mentioned. What What would be one piece of advice you'd give somebody on getting kids out and getting them to enjoy the sport of fishing? Patience. You know, sometimes we, especially when we've done this for so long, everything's second nature to us. Uh, a lot of times we have to remember whether it's a kid or just somebody who's brand new into fishing. They've never held uh, open face reel before. You know, it's upside down. Okay, let's start from the beginning then. You know, just having those patients to, to, to really talk them through everything and understanding that you have to explain things to them is key. Uh, the other thing too, is I think we're all a little bit harder on our own kids than we are with, you know, clients or guest kids. Um, one mistake that I made with my own son is we were out ice fishing and my middle son is not as outdoorsy as my other two, but he really wants to be part of the, the group and wants to be, you know, doesn't want to disappoint dad per se. And he went out ice fishing, fishing like a trooper. Well, his boots were leaking and he never told me until it was like he was in tears and I didn't know why he was crying. Well, I found his feet were almost frostbitten. So, you know, I just, I felt horrible, absolutely horrible that he thought he couldn't tell me that because I'd be upset that we'd have to leave. And that broke my heart. And, and that right there was kind of a wake up call to me that, you know, make sure you're paying attention, make sure you're paying attention to every single little detail with your kids or other kids, though they are having fun out there. Even if their boots are leaking, you need to make sure. Yeah, even if it's just for a half an hour or an hour, if they have fun, it's going to be a lot more beneficial or memorable than if they're out there for four hours but only have fun for one hour of it. I mean, they're only going to remember, you know, that they were out there for four hours and it was cold the whole time. Absolutely. that, And that's – you know, the saving grace to that day was they caught their first pike, which was a 25-incher, and as we were getting a picture of that, the flag went up behind us, and we went and landed that, and I let my oldest and middle son land that fish on their own. I just helped them. Little did I know how big it was. They, their second fish ever caught through the ice was, it was a 40-inch pike, just a tank. I was like, come on. Daddy's That's been out here for years, and I've only got a handful of these. That's incredible. But it made it, it helped make that day memorable for them, even though we had the, the cold boots incident that happened later in the day. 
No, I think that's really great advice. But Adam, uh, you know, I just want to say thanks. You know, thanks for joining us, sharing a little bit with our listeners. Um, for anybody that's listening, again, talking to Adam Walton of Pike Pole Guide Service, check him out online, check him out on social media. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to him. Again, if you have any questions for Kyle or myself, more than welcome to answer your questions as well. Um, I want to thank Eskimo and our sponsors for letting us put on the podcast. And uh, again, Adam, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Until next time, guys, uh, you know, be safe distance socially and get out ice fishing. Uh-huh.